All right, good seeing you this morning. Let me join with Josh in welcoming you if you're here in person or watching us online this morning, especially if you're our guest and maybe with us for the first time in our worship experience. We're so glad that you're a part of this this morning. And our prayer is through this that somehow God's spirit will speak to your heart and your mind and challenge you in your faith journey. And uh, for some of you, that may mean this morning making the decision to becoming a follower of Christ. Uh, maybe if you're already a follower of Christ, it means becoming a part of a local church family. And we would love to be able to talk with you about those uh, decisions. So we do encourage you uh, during the service or maybe during the course of the week, if uh, you would just text the word FL Respond uh, to the number 833-571-3475. We will be able to follow up with you immediately, talk with you, pray with you about whatever it is, uh, decision that the Lord has laid on your heart regarding your relationship with him and we'll look forward to that. We are in the Advent season, as you can tell, the second week of uh, Advent. And uh, peace, uh, this subject of peace that we address today, I think out of the four themes of Advent, hope last week, peace this week, and then uh, joy and love, I think, I think that peace is the hardest draw on our faith and requires the most imagination. I think the reason is, is because peace is a word that we hear often in our world, the desire for peace, working for peace. And uh, in the world, when we think about peace, it's about two parties, whether it's individuals, families, or nations. They're trying to reconcile their differences. But at the end of the day, they don't because there is a stalemate over egos and pride. The unwillingness to compromise their positions of power. And as a result in the history of the world, the world has never really known peace, not in our history. Humanity has a terrible track record. Humanity is unable to reconcile itself to itself. The tragedy is, is we have the the capabilities of guided missiles controlled by men with misguided hearts. So when the Bible speaks of peace, It is something that is far different than what the world speaks of when it uses the language of of peace. In fact, the reason God's peace requires such great imagination, and I think in such a stretching of our faith, is that the peace that God discusses in Scripture, the peace that God offers, is peace that passes all understanding, it has come about as the result of God doing the very thing that would seem irreconcilable. That is reconciling sinful humanity, his sinful creation, reconciling that with the holiness of God. And so what I've tried to do in thinking about the run up to Advent season, having had a couple of months to think about this and, and pray about this, I really wanted to do something that, I, that I've never done before. And I, and I went back originally as I started thinking about the different themes, in particular thinking about peace, I went back and looked at, at all the, the typical verses, looked at the exhaustive concordance on, on all the passages, the, the most familiar passages that, that use that word peace and what kind of sermon I might make out of that. You know, I looked over in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, as you would expect, in verse 7, blessed, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. 
I looked also at chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I even looked at the prophecies of Zechariah over in Luke's gospel in chapter one, in verse 79, when he talks about this one who would come that would be a guide for our feet in the way of peace. And again, a familiar passage in Luke's gospel in chapter 19. Jesus said in verse 42, if you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Most of us, when we think about peace and our Lord's use of the language of of peace, we, we think of that familiar passage where he says, peace I live to you in John 14, 27, peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, I do give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled nor fearful. And then in chapter 16 of John's gospel, in verse 33, Jesus would say, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And after looking at those, considering those, I even thought about Jesus' most common post-resurrection greetings. Peace I give to you. But as I look back, this is my 34th Advent season as a pastor. And so I went back over 34 years. I started manuscripting my sermons 33 years ago when I became a pastor. I had the discipline of manuscripting my sermons. That is, writing out fully. Everything that I wanted to say on, on a Sunday morning, then get up and speak from, from the overflow. And so I, I went back to my index system and I looked at 34 years of what I had done for these particular passages. I'm wondering when I look at them, is there, is there something that I haven't done before? Is there something I haven't said before? Is there some nuance of the text? Is there something, is there something, some twist I can do with the text that, that would really capture people's attention, maybe in a way that it's never done before? to help us understand this concept of God's peace being played out in our life. And honestly, quite frankly, all of them I looked at, it was boilerplate stuff. It was everything you would expect to be said. It was very predictable. It was unimaginative. And so in thinking about this, I I, I believe this to be of such vital importance, abiding in Christ, having his peace, his peace being the reality of who we are as the people of God, that if we really believe in the Prince of Peace, and we truly believe that through him, God has afforded us a peace that the world cannot offer, And if we have had all these years, maybe in the course of our lifetime, even as confessing confessing Christians, if we have had the inability to capture this peace, regardless of all the sermons and Bible studies we've had about it, then I wanted it to be something more. I I wanted something that, that was imaginative. I wanted something, some understanding of peace being something that, that we could only dream of. 
something that, that we could see. I don't want peace, another advent, to just be something propositional, but that it might be something pictorial. Something that we could actually see portrayed in real time. That it would be something that maybe we could see in the life of someone else. And if it could be true in their life, this peace of God, if it could be true in their life, if it could be true in their circumstances, then maybe it can be true in my life. And thus, I came to Matthew chapter 1 in the life of Joseph. This is a text, what we're looking at today in verses 18 through 25, you will not find the word peace. But what you will find is a man that in his life, that in his character, that in his disposition, that in his faith, that his role in the event of the coming forth of the Christ child in raising him as a parent, you will find that Joseph himself is the bellwether representation of the peace of God that passes all understanding. One of the first things that emerges from this text, this peace that, that Joseph has in the midst of his circumstances, it becomes very evident as you, as you observe this man in these difficult circumstances, it is obvious that he has peace with God. Now, Matthew describes it this way in verses, in verses 18 and 19. It says, now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now we need to begin, and if we're going to really understand the peace that Joseph exhibits in his life, then it's imperative that we recon recognize from where it emerges. It emerges from his faith in God. That's why he is counted as being a righteous man. That's the way Matthew describes him. And so not, not unlike Abraham, as, as we have seen in Genesis 15, 6, and, and as Paul reiterated in our Roman series, especially in chapter 4 and verse 3 of Romans, which we will return to after the season of Advent. We see that just like, just like Abraham and just like anyone who is declared righteous, it is a result of faith. Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteous. It was credited to him as righteous. And what is true of Abraham was true of Joseph, and it's true of any of us. No one is counted righteous in the eyes of God apart from faith and belief and trust in him. And so Joseph's faith is something that is the very foundation of his life. Now, when talking about Joseph in the context of faith, and especially this peace that his faith gave him in the living of life, I think sometimes we fail to rightly understand. Maybe over-familiarity, we have read this account so many times, the birth of the Christ child, that we have lost, 
we have lost our sense of the challenges that, that Joseph was facing. They, this, was a very, this was a very complex situation. Now, part of appreciating what Joseph was, was dealing with is to understand that in, the, that in the ancient Near East and the ancient Hebrew culture, marriage was a two-step process. I mean, Matthew uses the word here betrothed, but, it, but it's marriage. It, it's the equivalent of, of being married. But marriage in the ancient Near East, in the Hebrew culture, it was a two-step process. And the first step was, was a formal exchange of consent before witnesses. Family had a young daughter, age of consent given at 12 to 13 years of age for marriage. And from that point on, the man, the one to whom she was to marry, he had full rights over her. And at any point, what would happen over the next year after, after this consent, after this consent was, was given for marriage, the husband would then take his betrothed, essentially married, he would take this, this young 12 to 13 year old girl and introduce her to his family. But for the remainder of that year, she, she lived with her own family after meeting the family of the groom. But if at any point, over the, over the course of that year of her, leave, of her living back with her family, if there was any infringement upon the groom's rights to that girl, she could be charged with adultery according to the law, according, according to, to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 13 and verses 20 through 21. According to the law, if there was any infringements upon the man's rights, to this girl. She could be charged with adultery, brought up on charges, taken by the men of the city, out in public, exposed publicly, and stoned to death. The second step in the process was a, form, a formal ceremony a year later for the full transfer of rights and the, the young bride moving into the home of her now husband. Essentially, married from day one. But here's the problem. During that year, Mary became pregnant. And Joseph was not the father. Now any of us can put ourselves in that situation. You can imagine the tumult, the tension, of two families. You can imagine what she's going through. You can imagine what he's going through. His mind is going in a thousand normal, a thousand directions that no man wants to go in his mind regarding his betrothed, his wife. So you can imagine all the things that, all the turmoil that, that is going on. So what is he to do? Well, she's fortunate that he is a righteous man. This is a man that has known the grace of God and the mercies of God, and he is counted as righteous in the eyes of God. And since he was, as the text says in verse 19, since he was a righteous man who knew the mercies of God and the grace of God, he did not want 
to disgrace. He did not want to disgrace her. He didn't want to pile on shame upon shame, guilt upon guilt, accusation upon accusation. The public was going to do that anyway. Her community, people, friends, so-called friends, they were going to do that anyway. But being a righteous man, what does a righteous man do in that, in that situation? A man like Joseph who has a peace with God. as he planned to send her away secretly, quietly, in secret. Polysi is the word to send her away, divorce. Polysi, the word translated sin here, in every other context in Scripture where that word appears in the Greek, it's translated as divorce. My divorce will not be a pun. I'm a righteous man. I'm going to deal with things quietly. I've known the grace of God. I'm not going to bring disgrace. In Joseph's mind, this was the answer. Knowing his moral and legal obligation according to the word of God, the law of God. I know she has to be divorced, but I'm going to do it quietly, discreetly. No fanfare. I like to think that Joseph being a righteous man, that he understood the definition of faith and what characterizes faith. As the writer of Hebrews would say in chapter 11, verse 1, I like to think that, that, that Joseph understood well that, that faith is the certainty of things hoped for. It is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. And so his understanding of this kind of faith, being a righteous man, it enabled him to imagine, to dream perhaps of what, of what God was conceiving in his providential plans and purposes. And because of faith, because he was a righteous man, he would deal with this quietly and just wait to see what God had in store next. He had peace with God. But you know what he also had? He had peace within. The narrative continues and says in verse 20, but, but when he had thought this over, what he was going to do, you know, divorcing her quietly, secretly, discreetly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. In a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her 
is of the Holy Spirit. We need to call our attention to that phrase. It says, when he had thought. It's not, it's, it's, it's not when, you, when you read that, uh, you need to understand that when he thought, when Joseph was thinking of these things, when it says he had thought, it's much stronger than it translates. The word and the syntax as it is used, it means something that, that is prolonged. It is a prolonged contemplation. It is a prolonged reflection. This wasn't something that was done out of emotion. This wasn't done out of embarrassment. This wasn't something that was reactionary because of the shame she had brought upon him. No, being a righteous man, being a man of God that had known his mercies and grace, he gave prolonged contemplation and thoughtfulness to what should be done. Listen, this kind of thinking, this kind of reflection and contemplation for all believers, it is something that is necessary to understanding and much more so making applicable the word of God and the will of God. So righteousness, the right thing to do as far as Joseph understands at this point, being a righteous man, he wants to do the will of God. He's studying the scripture. And so in, in Joseph's mind at this point, as he thinks about it, I've got to do what is morally, scripturally, legally, the right thing to do. And I'm going to divorce her. Because that's what the law says. That's my moral obligation as a righteous man. So his understanding of the right thing to do at this point is based upon the letter of the law. But what does the angel of the Lord say? The angel of the Lord says what is totally unexpected. He said, the angel says what we would have never imagined. The angel of the Lord says what can only be dreamed of. In this kind of situation, this kind of tumultuousness, you know what the angel of the Lord said? Listen, don't divorce her. You marry her. The angel of the Lord, you marry her. You know what I see in these words? I think it's the precursor of the very words that Jesus would say to his disciples in Matthew chapter five, those six occasions where Jesus is trying to show his disciples between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. When Jesus said to those disciples, he said, I, you have heard it said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. And he goes through this litany of established laws. You've heard it said, but I say to you, I think this is the precursor to that. The angel of the Lord saying, I know what the law says. I don't want you to divorce her. I want you to marry her. I find strange encouragement in this passage of scripture. That in the first telling of the gospel, that in the first telling of the good news of God's redemptive plan and purposes, I find this strange encouragement that in this first telling of the gospel, there is included a problem like divorce. 
that there is in this passage the first telling of the gospel, the breakthrough of God's good news. There's a human failure involved. The angel of the Lord said, no, there's, there's another righteousness. Listen, there is no righteousness through the law. You're creating, you're creating an animal, you're creating a monster that you'll never be able to satisfy. There is no righteousness through the law. Let me teach you about the spirit of the law, which is always redeeming. Don't divorce her. I want you to marry her. Listen, we all have conflicts in our inner world. I can't even imagine what Joseph's going through, but we have all had conflicts in our inner man, in our inner world. We all deal with demons. We all fight fears we can't conquer. We all, we all have things that, that we have to deal with inside our, our head. We all have hurts, disappointments that, that won't go away. We all have feelings that we don't manage well. And you can be certain that Joseph was probably not unlike us. Unlike us, He was dealing with all of these negative emotions that were seeking to get a foothold in his mind. But you know what he chose to do? He chose to believe in the word of God. He chose to believe in the word of God. He knew what the law said, but you know what? I'm going, to, I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen to the word of the angel of the Lord. I'm going to believe and trust in that word. And you know what it gave him? When he chose to believe and trust this righteous man, he had not only peace with God, but he had peace within but there's more to the story. Having a peace with God and having a peace within. He had a peace with others. Even those that would ridicule him. Even those that would shame him, even in his embarrassment. Even when so-called friends were in his ear saying, I can't believe you're going to marry her. I can't believe you're going to stay with her after what she has done. Do you believe that story? Oh, if I was you, I would never let a spouse treat me that way. Pride, ego. Now you can be sure, Joseph, I mean, being a righteous man, he had an image in the community. You think there was a Think there was not a twinge of embarrassment? What, what will people think of me now? See, pride and ego, things that steal away the possibilities of redemption, of possibilities that we can only imagine, possibilities that, that we would dare even to dream. Well, pride and ego, listen, it'll steal those things away. And Joseph had to learn to let it go. Notice in verses 21 and 25, listen to the rest of it. The angel speaking to him says of Mary, she will give birth to a son. And you shall name him Jesus. For he will save people from their sins. 
Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. You see, Joseph realizes now, this isn't just about me. That there is something bigger at work in the providential purposes of God. The season that this what is just a season in my life, my hurt, my embarrassment, my, my shame, this is, this is just a season. This is just a chapter in, in my life. This is just a moment for me. But God is doing something bigger. He knew he would be scorned. He knew that people would make fun. He knew that there was going to be human nature. He knew people were going to be gossiping behind his back. But what the angel of the Lord said to him and what gave him a sense of peace with God and a peace within is that he, was, that he knew and he believed that God was doing something even for these people that they've not yet imagined for themselves. That those who are so quick to draw lines in the sand, those who are so quick to tell me what I should do and what I should have done. I've just got to be patient with them. I've got to be redemptive as I have been, been redeemed. I've, I've just got to be patient with it because God is doing something bigger for them than they've ever imagined. God is going to act redemptively even for those around me that would seek to drag me down to their, to their level. He was at peace with others in their scorn and all the things that others could do to him and say about him because he realized that this was a redemptive moment, that God is doing something that no one would imagine, no one would dream of. And not just for me and my marriage, not just me and my family, but, but out of my pain, out of my, out of my circumstances, others will see my peace with God. That others might see my reaction, how I deal with this, how I have trusted in God, how I've been faithful to God, even through these most trying times in my life. And God uses this for the redemption and maybe to do something redeeming in the lives of others. Seneca, the Stoic, said it well. It doesn't matter what you bear. It matters how you bear it. It doesn't matter what you bear in life. It matters how you bear it. And Joseph didn't want to do anything that would be detrimental. He didn't want to react in a way to his circumstances that would be detrimental to others. That he, he didn't want to do anything that would take away from his witness and his faithfulness and his belief and trust in God. He didn't want other people to see that kind of negative witness in his life. No, it's very easy, isn't it? When we go through hardship to make ourselves the center of our own universe. I mean, we tend to blow ourselves up 
and our experiences into something being bigger than they, than they really are. I, th- I think of it akin, it's something akin to children's, children's paintings and drawings. I keep a stack of, I have, I have a huge folder and I even have a huge stack on my desk up here of pictures that kids draw for me and give to me after church sometime out here in the foyer. And I love all those and I keep all of those. But it's funny when you look at the, draw, the, the drawings and the paintings that, that kids do, everything's always out of proportion. You know, they'll give me a picture of their family that they, grew, that they drew during church. And, you know, the family's mom, dad, and a couple of siblings there, and they're standing next to the house. Well, the people are always giants, and the house is always a little bitty. Or they'll draw me a picture of their horse in the barn. And the, and the horse is gargantuan. And the barn's a little old bitty barn right there next to it. Things are out of proportion. And I think that's what happens to us as the children of God. Sometimes we see ourselves out of proportion to the size that we really are in God's narrative. Because all of this is God's narrative. It's not our narrative. We are a part of the story of God that he is writing. And sometimes we blow up ourselves in our times of hardship. We blow up ourselves and our issues to a proportion that is, that is much larger than it should ever be. You know the answer to that? It's worship. That's why we come to worship in rhythmic fashion because it, it keeps us in proper proportion to the greatness and the vastness of God. Reminding us that God is God and we're not. Joseph is keeping things in perspective. I want the world to see in me a peace that passes all understanding. He didn't want to do anything that's detrimental. Listen, church, that is the power of your witness. That is the power of your pain. That is the power of your unfortunate circumstances. That is the power of your embarrassment and shame. That is the empowerment, that is the influence of your brokenness in the world. God has a, listen, God has a long lineage, a storied lineage of using broken people, dealing with with junk, in life, like divorce from Joseph. And how he uses those people in their most difficult seasons of life, and it becomes something redemptive in the lives of other people. You know how that, you know how that happens? Because he is in the world. God is with us. Emmanuel. And I see God with us. I see Emmanuel on a daily basis out there in that world. You can see God with us working in the circumstances of life out there. Listen, I see more of God with us in one day out there than a thousand Sundays in here talking to Spitshine Saints. And that's no offense to you, but the work of God is done out there, not in here. That's where Emmanuel, God with us, is working through real people in real time in a real world. 
But that has always been how God has done things. That's how in God's history, he has always worked redemptively, not through spit-shined saints, but broken sinners saved by grace. I mean, you don't have to go any further than the genealogy of Jesus to be convinced. You know, genealogies are normally a pretty dry read, but if you go through these 14 generations back here at the start of, of Matthew chapter one, you go through these 14 generations and you have four peculiar individuals that pop up, four women that pop up in here that you would never expect to be, a, to be associated with the lineage and the genealogy of Jesus. And out of these 14 men, 14 fathers that, that are mentioned in this, in this genealogy, only four of them are, are mentioned with, with these women. And what you notice about these women, if you go back and investigate them in scripture, what you will note about these women is that they are either morally corrupt or they're of an ethnicity you would not have anticipated being a part of the Lord Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ and his lineage. But it's always broken people. You go to verse three in chapter one, you see Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite. She's a daughter-in-law. The daughter-in-law obligated to play, to play the, the harlot in order to trick her father-in-law into keeping his, his promises. And the, and the fruit of that tricky union is, is, is actually one of the great-grandfathers of our Lord. Are you kidding me? Verse 5, Rahab, a harlot? Come on, you got to be kidding me. A harlot? A Jerichoite assisted the spies back in Joshua chapter 2 and Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith. She's, she's held forth as, as, as a model of faith. James, James chapter 2, James holds up this woman, Rahab, who was a harlot, held her up as a model of, of works. Historically, a great-grandmother of our Lord. Ruth in verse five as well, she was a Moabite. Now she was the least morally corrupt of, of these four women. But if you know the story of Ruth, I mean, my goodness, she was a tad aggressive, wasn't she? I mean, come on. She was a descendant of the incestuous lot. Man, this thing gets, this thing gets worse in the telling. But this Gentile woman becomes the great-grandmother of David, of all people. And then Bathsheba, verse 6, literally the wife of Uriah, a Hittite on top of that, of all things. And it's almost like in the telling of, in the inclusion of Bathsheba, I mean, it, it seems like even Matthew blushes at the thought of this union, this unlawful union uh, with, with David described in 2 Samuel 11. And yet Bathsheba is the great grandmother of our Lord. Now I know our self-righteous response is, as we hear this, we go, well now pastor, you know, it is for the likes of such as these that our Lord died. Yeah, and I get all that, and you wouldn't be wrong. But how comfortable are we in saying that it is through such as these, 
through whom our Lord came into this world. See, it reminds us again and again and again that the purposes of God, that the intentions of God, we're never going to be determined by purity of, of limit, of purity of limit, by, by religious purity or, or, or ethnic purity. That was never the intention of God. God doesn't have a history of, of, of using flawless saints to do his work. It's flawed sinners saved by grace. And being a saint Listen, it's never about us and what we have done or what we're doing. It's about what God has done and what God is doing. Jesus said of himself, I'm meek. I'm lowly of heart. He came from such and he lived as such. And so you and I, when we go out into the real world, among real people, and we act like a real person, there's possibilities. There is redemptive hope that God is going to accomplish something for them through you. You don't have to wear a facade out there. The world, can, the, the world can spot a phony a mile off, and there's nothing easier to spot than a religious phony. But if you go out there into a real world with real people and act like a real person, the possibilities are beyond imagination. It's the stuff we can only dream of. Let's pray together. Father. Might we never, by our reactions to the trials of life, might we never be a detriment to what you are seeking to accomplish, not just through us, but through the lives of all those through whom we interact. Might we never take for granted the influence that you have entrusted to us that by our presence in the world, we proclaim and we hold forth the belief of Emmanuel. God with us.